Welcome to the Close Set Podcast. My name is Themistocles Alexis. On today's episode, we will be revisiting the life and early work of the great American filmmaker, Hal Ashby. to the program. Uh, it's good to be back. I've been away for about a month. This is the first episode I am putting out under the uh, the new schedule. New episodes will drop the first Thursday of every month from now on. It took me a long time to get a schedule going. I probably should have done this months ago, but uh, in any case. Uh, and like I said, we will be looking at the life and the early films of the great Hal Ashby today. Uh, before we get down to that, though, a couple of things I would like to get out of the way, a few things I need to address. First of all, uh, I want to give a uh, special shout-out to my friend Laurent Morin. He composed and performed the theme music that you hear at the beginning of every episode. A very special shout-out to him. Uh, and also, I would like to thank uh, each and every one of you for listening and for supporting the show. Uh, we are not doing BAFO numbers, of course, because who the fuck am I? But uh, I am very proud to report that we have listeners from over 30 countries. And over the last month, we've gotten listeners from pretty much all over the world. I mean, Israel, Austria... India, Japan, Portugal, the UK, Germany, Denmark. My first Swedish listeners came in, which makes me very happy. Yep, that's right. I'm running things. I'm running things! And uh, like I said, I uh, I love seeing that stuff, so please keep it coming. I got some lovely comments recently as well, which, uh, which was very, very heartwarming and made me very happy. So thank you again to everyone for listening. And also, I would like to remind you that you can find the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, tune in pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and please don't forget to like, subscribe, leave comments, ratings, reviews, whatever you can do to uh, help the show rank a little better and uh, get a few more eyes on it. Every little bit helps and is greatly appreciated. And also, if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can find us on the Instagram at Close Set Podcast. That is Close Set Podcast. I basically use that to announce uh, which directors we're going to be covering next, which of their films we're going to be looking at. Uh, when new episodes are supposed to drop, and uh, all that good stuff. So give us a follow, shoot us a DM if you'd like as well, they're always welcome. And you can also reach us via email at closedsetpod at gmail.com. That is closedsetpod at gmail.com for any uh, questions, comments, uh, any feedback or constructive criticism you've got is always welcome. Uh, any recommendations, any directors you would like to see us cover on the show in the near future, uh, please feel free. And also... Uh, I need to make a, a couple of corrections, actually, for uh, last month's episode. We covered Melvin Van Peebles, the great Melvin Van Peebles, uh, and I made an error. I mentioned in that episode that the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act uh, were passed in the United States in 1963 and 1964, when in fact the correct dates are 1964 and 1965. Uh, so I just wanted to make that little amendment. And also, I just wanted to provide a little bit of historical context. I kind of failed to do that when I was uh, talking about Melvin last time. Uh, if you listen to that episode and some of the older clips from the early 70s, especially from around the time uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song and The Story of a Three-Day Pass came out, his films, you'll hear him taking a bit of a radical stance when it comes to uh, race relations in America. And I mentioned in that episode as well that he was uh, a supporter of the Black Panthers. I mean, he wrote a movie about them. 
uh, later in life. But in any case, um, I just wanted to provide a little context for his stances and some of the things he said during that time in the early 70s. Uh, it was a time of uh, great unrest and great upheaval in the, the United States, basically. I mean, uh, some progress had been made in terms of public policy, at least, with race relations, with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act being passed in 64 and 65. Uh, but even still, I mean, there was a lot happening in the United States at that time. The war in Vietnam was still ranging on. There were anti-war protests happening all over America. The counterculture movement was at its peak in the late 60s. You had the Black Panthers who were sort of uh, gaining steam in the late 60s. Uh, and through this and through the early 70s basically and not just that the FBI under J Edgar Hoover was cracking down very very hard on the Panthers and even conducting surveillance on public figures who supported them publicly and donated money to their cause and not just that even in 1969 you had the Stonewall riots in New York City and Greenwich Village which is basically credited with spawning the uh, the gay rights movement in the United States so this is a time of uh, it's a time of turmoil in the United States to say the least and so uh, I just wanted to mention that to provide a little context because I think it would help explain some of the stances that Melvin had during the early 70s especially. And uh, I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode if you haven't. I think it's a good one personally. So with that out of the way, let's talk about today's order of business. So Hal Ashby, great American filmmaker like I said, was a very important figure in the New Hollywood era of the late 60s and early 70s, which was basically a time when uh, the inmates were running the asylum, the inmates being uh, Hollywood directors. And uh, Ashby got a start as an editor, had a very long apprenticeship as an editor, did a lot of work with Norman Jewison, who was a creative partner and a friend and mentor to him. And uh, Ashby began making films in the 70s. We are going to be covering his first four films today, which are, in chronological order, The Landlord, 1970, Harold and Maude, which came out the year after in 71, The Last Detail, which came out in 1973, and lastly, Shampoo, 1975. But, of course, we will start at the beginning. Now, Ashby was born William Hal Ashby on September 2nd, 1929 in Ogden, Utah. He was born, actually, uh, not long before the the Wall Street crash of 1929. He was the youngest of four children, and his parents were Mormons. But by the time Ashby was born, they had kind of distanced themselves from, uh, from the faith, and he wasn't raised in a particularly religious household. And his father owned a dairy company and was uh, actually very successful and even did well through the 1930s during the Great Depression, so they weren't hit by the crash too hard. And being the the baby of the family, the youngest of four kids, Ashby was uh, basically the favorite of his mother. She had a a soft spot for him, at least. Uh, That said, Ashby's parents weren't always consistently present in his life throughout his childhood, and he and his brother Jack, who was the third born, basically were best friends. They were very close growing up, and Ashby's older siblings, Hetz and Ardith, his brother and sister, they were 17, 18 years older than him, and they played a very big role in raising him. And when Ashby was around six years old, his parents ended up splitting. They got divorced. And it was after this that Ashby, his brother Jack, and his mother Eileen, uh, they left Ogden, and they kind of moved around for a while. They bounced from place to place. They ended up settling in Portland, Oregon for a little while. But eventually they made it back to Ogden, Utah in 1939 when Ashby was around 10 years old. And his father, I mean, I've read Ashby's biography, and Ashby's father was a pretty consistent presence in his life. Even after uh, his parents were divorced, the the split was amicable. Uh, But Ashby never really got to know his father particularly intimately because in March of 1942, Ashby's father, James, committed suicide. He shot himself in his office at the dairy company. There have been several myths that have emerged surrounding the suicide of uh, of Ashby's father. 
One of them being that Hal discovered the body, that is not true, and the other being that uh, the motive for James Ashby's suicide was that he was in danger of losing the dairy company, he was in financial trouble or some such, but that is also untrue. And Ashby always believed his father's death was a suicide, rarely ever talked about it, uh, both in interviews and with friends. He never really confided in people about his upbringing or his past. He was 12 years old when his father shot himself, and naturally, I mean, obviously it goes without saying that it had a, a tremendous lifelong impact on him. And so, into his adolescence, he uh, he became a bit of a a bit of a rebel. He had a rebellious streak in him as a teenager. He cut class. He was a terrible student. Uh, spent very little time at home to the point where his mother Eileen ended up sending him to a naval academy, thinking it would set him straight. Uh, and the naval academy was in Washington State. Ashby kind of fancied himself as being anti-establishment and anti-authority. Although, from what I understand, at least according to his biography, he actually adapted pretty well. To life in the Naval Academy and did pretty well there. But in any case, he come he came back to Utah in his late teens. And he met a local girl there in Ogden, in his hometown, a girl by the name of Levon Compton. And at 17 years old, the two of them were married. And soon after that, uh, Ashby's first and only child, a daughter named Lee, was born. Now, although he had fallen in love with a local girl and gotten her pregnant and gotten married, Ashby wasn't too keen on the idea of settling down and living a conventional life in Ogden. He wanted to sort of get out in the world. Uh, although at this time, he didn't really have any aspirations of becoming a filmmaker. He wanted to, you know, get out and see the world and find himself, for lack of a, a less corny term. And so he ended up leaving Utah. He left his wife and daughter behind. And he never really played a, any kind of a role in his daughter's life for as long as he lived. And so after leaving Utah, he kind of drifted around for a little bit. He worked various odd jobs, scraped by, and he eventually made his way to Los Angeles. And even while he was there, he struggled. He worked a variety of jobs that he didn't particularly enjoy. He scraped by. He met another woman there, got married again. And also, he briefly moved back to Utah to help his mom run the family store. She had kind of taken over the dairy business, and uh, they had kind of reconfigured it. And so he moved back to help her run, run the show for a little while, but he didn't stay. He ended up leaving for L.A. all over again. His second marriage went south, and it was only upon returning to L.A. that he thought about getting into the film business. He's admitted uh, in interviews that he was attracted to the glamour of life in the film industry. Uh, but of course, he had no idea how to get his foot in the door, so he kind of naively went to uh, the state employment office in Los Angeles and basically asked for a job in the film industry. And luckily, he got a job copying scripts at Universal. And he had aspirations of becoming a film director, but the more people he met uh, while working as a script copier, the more he heard that editing was the way to go. And so in the mid-50s, when Ashby was in his mid-20s, he got a job through a friend working as an assistant editor for Joseph Shaftel. And that basically marked the beginning of a very, very long apprenticeship as an editor. And Ashby kept working as an assistant editor through the 50s. He worked for the great William Wyler, who directed Detective Story and Funny Girl and a bunch of other great films. Uh, he ended up working for Wyler under his director, Bob Swift, on a film called The Big Country, which came out in 1958. I've seen it. It's not the best. It's got a really good cast. Uh, Gregory Peck's not very good in it. I never really liked him. But, but Gene Simmons and Carol Baker, Burl Ives... Charles Bickford are in it. Charlton Heston's in it as well. It's basically this three-hour epic western. Uh, but in any case, Ashby worked under Bob Swift on that as an assistant editor. And he went on to work for George Stevens as well. George Stevens uh, directed the film Giant with Rock Hudson and Liz Taylor and James Dean in the mid-50s. Uh, Ashby worked under him on a film called The Diary of Anne Frank. And in the mid-60s, in 1965 to be exact, he worked for Tony Richardson, who we've covered on this show before. 
Uh, Ashby edited the film The Loved One, which came out in 1965, was a very disappointing film and a very, very frustrating experience for many of the people involved in the making of it. Uh, but in any case, despite all that, Ashby's cutting his teeth in Hollywood. He's developing a reputation as a workhorse and as a master editor, and it was around the time that he was working on The Loved One with Tony Richardson that he met Norman Jewison. Now, Norman Jewison, who I believe is still with us, he's in his 90s, he directed In the Heat of the Night, he directed Moonstruck, and Justice for All, The Cincinnati Kid, a bunch of great films. And uh, Norman Jewison, like I said, became a very close friend, a mentor, and a creative partner to Hal Ashby, and was a great influence on how Ashby conducted himself as a filmmaker. We're going to get into that a little later. So the two of them meet, and they start working together. Jewison asks Ashby to edit his film, The Cincinnati Kid, which came out in 1965. Jewison replaced Sam Peckinpah, who had been fired very, very early on in the shoot. And it's a film about gambling. It's very similar to The Hustler. It's with Steve McQueen and Margaret Carl Malden. Uh, Edward G. Robinson, Rip Torn, it's a fantastic cast. And so Ashby worked with him on that. Uh, and up until then, Jewison had basically made, you know, some sort of safe and cutesy comedies. And it was while Jewison and Ashby were working together that they sort of shared a, a vision to make films with a message and that it had some kind of social commentary in them. Keep in mind, this is in the mid-60s. Again, we talked about the, we mentioned the civil rights movement earlier. The war in Vietnam is still going on. And Jewison also had a very big influence on Ashby with how he dealt with producers. Jewison was basically of the mind that producers were the enemy and that the money men and the financiers of films really didn't have much business interfering in the creative process. But in any case, Ashby and Jewison keep working together. Ashby worked for Jewison again as an editor on The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. This was in 1966. And it's a comedy film. It's with Alan Arkin, Carl Reiner, Ava Marie Saint, Jonathan Winters, a very big cast. And it's, uh, you know, it kind of takes the piss out of the alarmism of the Cold War and all that stuff. Uh, and Ashby actually got his first Oscar nomination for his work editing the film. And the year after that, in 1967, Ashby made In the Heat of the Night with Norman Jewison. And it, it's a classic film with Sidney Poitier, Rod Steiger, Lee Grant, War Notes. This came out in 1967, like I said, it was on the heels of the Civil Rights Movement. And it's a murder mystery with a lot of commentary on race relations in the United States and the Deep South in particular. And Ashby ended up winning uh, his first and only Oscar for his work editing this film. And the year after that, in 1968, Ashby and Jewison collaborate yet again on The Thomas Crown Affair with Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway. They worked together again the year after that on a film called Gaily Gaily, which came out in 1969. And all these 60s films that Jewison and Ashby made together were uh, put out by the Mirish Corporation and United Artists. So the Mirish Corporation was the production company, and United Artists were the distributors. And finally, after doing all this work with Jewison, and after this, this years-long creative partnership and friendship, Ashby finally begins work on his first film as a director in 1969, at around age 40, with Norman Jewison producing. And that film was The Landlord, which came out in 1970. Now, The Landlord stars Bo Bridges, Jeff's brother, as Elgar Enders, who's a privileged white man, he lives off an allowance from his wealthy parents, and he buys a rundown tenement building in Park Slope, Brooklyn. And the building is populated by black tenants, who are often behind on the rent, they're struggling to make ends meet. And Elgar Enders initially buys this tenement, intending to gut it, renovate it, and basically move into it himself, as a way of, you know, breaking away from his parents. But over the course of the film, you see him get to know his tenants, he sees how the other half lives, and he begins rebelling against his, you know, waspy conservative upbringing. He clashes with his parents. Elgar, are, are you aware that, um, 
That's a colored neighborhood. Colored neighborhood. Oh, yes, I'm three doors from Mom's chitlin and rib joint. Oh, Elgar. <laughs> Elgar, we will not discuss the uh, revolting aspects of your business venture at this table, if you don't mind, huh? Yeah, well, what's it all about, folks? <laughs> well, Peter, um... No, 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 Peter. Actually, you might as well hear now, since you're most likely going to marry my sister. If she hasn't told you already, tell me what. Uh, Elgar, don't you dare. <laughs> He's about to say something. No, no, ready. Mother, we can't <laughs> keep it a secret all our lives now. You want to hear the truth, don't you, Peter? Yes. No, because it, it has something to do with you and Susan. Well, what are you talking about? Peter, actually, uh, our whole family, Mom, uh, Susu, Dad, William Jr., and Grandfather here, we are all octoroons. And he romances two women over the course of the film, one of whom is a tenant of his that he ends up getting pregnant, and the other is a biracial woman that he meets in a bar. And all this to say, I mean, basically what the film is about, you see Elgar get out of his comfort zone. You know, he falls on his face a few times. Like I said, he's a privileged kid who was born with a silver spoon. He doesn't really know how to do anything. He doesn't really know how to fend for himself. And so we basically watch him over the course of the film kind of stumble his way into becoming a man and, you know, get, finally getting his life started at the age of 29. And this is kind of a recurring theme in these early films that we're going to be mentioning as we go along. It's these these male protagonists of Ashby's who, you know, are basically just struggling to find their way in the world and, you know, end up making a, a variety of mistakes and blunders in the process thereof. And the film is a comedy, and it is really funny, but it also doubles as a commentary on race relations. Black. 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 Black, baby. Black. Baby, black is a whole new thing. And you are going to have to reckon with it. Is it a fad, though? See, that's the thing. Man, that is not the thing. It's like you got a mole. You got a mole right here. And you do anything to get rid of this mole. Because everybody that doesn't have moles got you to believe like it's real ugly. So you'd do anything? I mean, you'd hide your face. Anything. Walk in backwards. Anything. You'd do everything. I mean, anything. Then one day. One day. One day. Moles are in. Moles are in. People are getting out their eyebrow pencils, marking them on, and you got one naturally right in the middle of your forehead. You're gonna know what pride is for the first time, baby. For the first time! There's talk of class, of course. I mean, you have, you know, there's a huge, stark contrast between Elgar's privileged upbringing and the tenants of this, this apartment building that he's bought. There's talk of interracial relationships as well. Like I said, he romances one of the black tenants in his building. He starts seeing a biracial woman as well. Well, my mother's Irish, my uh, father's black, and uh, they got divorced when I was uh, 16 years old. And the court said I should spend the winters with my father when I was going to school. And in the summers, I uh, lived with my mother. So in the summer, I was white, and, and in the winter, I was black. God, what did that do to you? I got very wise. And there's some more commentary on that because Elgar's girlfriend Janie is biracial and she often passes for white and then we see she's the victim of colorism. You know, some of her darker-skinned co-workers give her shit. Morning, honey, leave perfume, lipstick, 
anything like that around, man. You know, it's like nobody sees it. I don't understand it. Chicks just go blind. Try uh, Miss Thing. She had a date last night. Miss Thing, you see my perfume? Uh, I think we ought to uh, check her pocketbook, man. No, I don't think you better check my pocketbook. Uh, still, get this pocketbook to me. Get hostile. Listen, you raggedy-ass black bitch. Don't you mess with me. Let me tell you something, you high yellow heifer. You have to get a lot blacker and a lot badder to stand there and call me a black bitch. Get something straightened out, honey. Because you got yourself one of them little blue-eyed wonders don't mean a fucking thing to me. And of course, perhaps more than anything, there's commentary on gentrification, and this is well before Spike Lee did it with Do the Right Thing in 1989. We see very early on in the film that Park Slope is getting gentrified. People are coming in, buying these rundown buildings for cheap, either evicting the tenants, getting them relocated, pricing them out, whatever it is, and taking over the buildings for themselves. Bonton Heights will start a trend in urban renewal, Mr. Enders. Restored landmarks will be the latest scream, I'm sure. I just hope you're seeing Mr. Farkas's place going so well will inspire you to feel rosy about your new place. I can't wait to My, my, my. Shopping without stopping. Oh, Enid. Mr. Farkas. This is street music, isn't it marvelous? This is Mr. Enders. The sconces came. He's your new neighbor. Uh, I'm, I'm Elgar Enders. I'm your new neighbor. How are you? You just bought a house in the next yeah, block. Yeah, I just bought a place a block from here. Hey, your house is just great. It's just fantastic. Well, this neighborhood's going to be very chic, very chic. Let's hope this influx of the uh, beautiful people is the beginning of an inclination. Hmm? Well, having that. What the hell is that? What is that? Eviction powder. Eviction powder? What, 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 what's eviction powder? Oh, it's nothing, Mr. Enders. Just a little voodoo. And the film was shot by Gordon Willis, who we talked about on our Alan J. Pakula episode. He directed all three films of the Paranoia Trilogy. He shot The Godfather, did a bunch of work uh, for Woody Allen as well, one of the great cinematographers. He shot this, and... We see that commentary on gentrification very early on in the film with the shots of the gutted tenement buildings. There's a scene early on in the film where Elgar's being chased down the street in Brooklyn and he's running past these lots where these old tenement buildings have been demolished. And it's a really wonderful film. It touches on a lot of themes, like I said, and a pretty daring film for its time. But the performances are wonderful. Let's talk about the cast quickly before we get into the rest of this. So Bo Bridges, like I said, is the lead. He plays Elgar. And he and Ashby had actually met... Uh, shortly before this on the film Gailey Gailey, which uh, Jewison had directed. And uh, Bo Bridges, like I said, Jeff Bridges' older brother, had a very, very long and uh, and respectable career. He's still around, he's still working, he's around 80 years old. He was in The Fabulous Baker Boys with his brother Jeff in the late 80s. Uh, he was on the Showtime series Masters of Sex, he was on Bloodline as well, and he's fantastic in this. So, uh, like Hart Crane, the poet, who's also a Cancerian, see, I'm a Cancerian, and home is very important, but we never seem to make it. So, uh, money's never been the problem. We have the great Lee Grant, who Ashby had met during the making of uh, In the Heat of the Night. She plays Elgar's mother, Joyce, his overbearing mother, Joyce. They have um, a complicated but good relationship, it seems, at least at the beginning of the film. But their relationship is complicated after Elgar buys the apartment building in Brooklyn and after he sees, he begins seeing Janie. Elgar... A lot of these people, not all, mind you, there's good black people as well as good white people. I've always taught you that. But some, mind you, live to set traps for rich white women. I'm not a rich white woman, mother. I know that, dear. I, I didn't mean that. You know I didn't mean that. It's just, 
Elgar. Didn't we all go together to see Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Yeah. It's just, Elgar, you have to realize all Negroes are not like that. Well, you sound like a segregationist. I think you have a castration complex that leads you to say things you like that. You have a that. castration complex. I can't have a castration complex. It isn't physically possible oh, for me Oh, let's face it, Mother. A castration, castration complex is one of the crosses a liberated female must bear. Oh, you think, you think I'm liberated, dear? Joyce, you are a liberated, aggressive, butch American broad. Doesn't mean I don't love you. And Lee Grant, her career was starting to take off in the early 50s after she did Detective Story, and then uh, she ended up getting blacklisted by the House of Un-American Activities Committee. She didn't work for a good 11 or 12 years. And her resurgence began basically with, it kind of began within the heat of the night, really, in the, the late 60s, early 70s. And uh, she ended up having a long and decorated career. And uh, she is also still around. She's in her 90s, and she is wonderful in this as always. We have Diana Sands, who plays Fanny the tenant in Elgar's building, who he uh, has a bit of a tryst with and uh, ends up impregnating. Diana Sands, who was pretty damn sexy in her day, I gotta say. She was in A Raisin in the Sun. She was both in the stage production and in the film. This was in 1961, if memory serves. Unfortunately, she ended up dying young. Uh, she died in 1973 of cancer at the age of 39. Uh, but she is wonderful in this. You know, I thought... I thought about going to Chicago. Maybe California. Go into the movies or go on TV or something. I'm sure tired of doing heads. Do you think I look good enough to be on TV? I think you look fantastic. Yeah, well, you wouldn't know it by Copey. He thinks I should be blacker. That's ridiculous. Why is that ridiculous? Because you're beautiful. It's just a red light. We have the great Pearl Bailey, who plays Marge who is the first tenant to show Elgar a little bit of warmth and open her home to him. Pearl Bailey was an accomplished actress, singer, and did a lot of great work on Broadway. She had known about the, the landlord, she had read the original novel, and she had always wanted to play Marge, from what I've read. And this role was actually her first film role in ten years. And she was actually performing on Broadway in Hello, Dolly! during the time this film was being shot. And there's the famous scene between Pearl Bailey and Lee Grant where she shows up to the tenement building, she ends up hanging out with Marge and uh, ends up getting shit-faced. It's a great scene. Travis, this will tear your head off. Why does it foam like that? Is that carbonated? Oh, it's just ruthless. It's ruthless. <laughs> well, listen, listen, would you like to have a little lunch? I got some ham hocks, I got some greens. I never eat lunch. It's my own diet. <laughs> never. You better sit down and have some lunch. How you white folks gonna defend yourself if you don't eat? <laughs> we have Louis Gossett Jr., who uh, was in A Raisin in the Sun with Diana Sands, won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in 1982 for An Officer and a Gentleman with Richard Gere, and he is in his mid-80s and still working, actually got nominated for an Emmy for Watchmen a couple of years ago. Uh, he plays Copey in this, the husband of Fanny, Diana Sands' character there, their husband and wife in this. Landlord, 
These arrows have been dipped in Fanny's barbecue sauce so as to make death slow and, and more, more agonizing, agonizing to its unfortunate victim. <laughs> Landlord, you have until the count of three to vacate these premises. One, two, three. You son of a bitch, you make one more crack about my spare ribs and I'm gonna bust your head. Oh, you should. You should. I thought I told you about putting your drum in the living room. And we have Marky Bay, who plays Lainey, the woman that Elgar begins seeing. Uh, we have Mel Stewart, who plays Professor Dubois, another tenant in the building who does not like Elgar at all. Mel Stewart was in Trick Baby, a black exploitation film based on the Iceberg Slim book in 1972. He was also in Let's Do It Again which was directed by Sidney Poitier in the mid-70s. Susan Ansbach plays Bo Bridges' sister Susan. She was in Five Easy Pieces with Jack Nicholson. She was in Play It Against Sam. Robert Klein, the great comic, plays Elgar's brother-in-law-to-be. And we have Walter Brook, who plays Elgar's conservative dad, William. Uh, Walter Brook was also in The Graduate. He says the famous line, plastics. And lastly, we have Ashby himself has a very, very brief cameo at the very, very beginning of the film. There's a very, very brief marriage scene in City Hall at the beginning of the film. It's the opening shot of the film, if memory serves. And that was actually, that shot was actually of Ashby's real marriage to his fifth wife, Joan Marshall. We're going to talk more about his marriages later. And so a few production notes for the landlord. So Jewison and Ashby had actually commissioned Bill Gunn to adapt Kristen Hunter's novel into a script for the landlord. Bill Gunn was actually a very prolific playwright, wrote, directed, and acted in uh, the film Ganja and Hess in the early 70s. Although, the Mirish Corporation and United Artists both needed some convincing to let to give Ashby a shot as a director, Jewison actually had to step in and convince them to give him a shot, and he actually got Ashby a $2 million budget to work with, which for that time was actually pretty generous for a first-time director. However, the producers only allowed Ashby to direct on the condition that Jewison produced the film, their thinking being that if for whatever reason Ashby couldn't hack it, that Jewison could step in to direct in his place, and the film could be salvaged into a respectable product. However... Even with a $2 million budget, the film couldn't be shot in Philly, uh, which is where the novel is based, so they moved it to New York City and Brooklyn. And uh, interestingly, I mean, Park Slope was a pretty rough neighborhood at that time. It's much, much different now. But it was in rough shape back then in the early 70s, as many parts of Brooklyn were. And uh, Ashby ended up hiring locals, people from the neighborhood, to act as security instead of hiring, you know, a formal crew. Uh, And that kind of helped things run smoothly over the course of the shoot. And Ashby... Uh, liked to keep things loose. He had a reputation for this. He liked to shoot a lot of film. And uh, because of this, he ended up falling behind schedule. The shoot ended up taking about 66 days. They ended up going $400,000 over budget. And the music is another important thing when we talk about Ashby. He was a huge music fan, took great care in finding and selecting the right music for his films. It was very, very important to him. He initially wanted Sly and the Family Stone to score the film, but that didn't end up coming to fruition. He then tried to get uh, Neil Young to score the film, but United Artists wanted a piece of Young's publishing rights, so that ended up falling through, much to Ashby's chagrin. Uh, but luckily, Ashby ended up getting Al Cooper to do the music. Al Cooper was a very prolific session musician. He had worked with Bob Dylan, and uh, the music is awesome, really, really groovy. And unfortunately, after the film was completed, the studio ended up botching the promotion. This was another thing that would happen several times over the course of Ashby's career. The promotional materials for The Landlord are not good. I mean, if you look at the poster, you see a finger pointing at two doorbells, which are shaped like tits. 
and somehow the people at the top, whoever it is that came to this decision, thought that branding the film that way would sort of attract a younger, hip audience, even though the poster is a terrible representation of the film. It's not what it's about at all. And even though The Landlord ended up getting solid reviews, uh, it only ended up making $1.5 million, so, uh, you know, so much for that marketing campaign. That said, Lee Grant ended up getting a Golden Globe nomination and an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress, and rightfully so. She is fantastic in this. And so even though The Landlord didn't end up making very much money, it got attention from the right people, and Ashby uh, became a pretty in-demand director. Offers started trickling in, and a man named Peter Bart, who worked for Robert Evans at Paramount, ended up coming to him with a script for Ashby's next film, which was Harold and Maud, which came out in 1971. Now this film centers on the relationship between Harold, who's a young man who's obsessed with death and repeatedly fakes his own suicide in front of his mother, and Maud, an 80-year-old Holocaust survivor who is, you know, a bit of a free spirit and committed to living life to the fullest, essentially. And the two of them are in the habit of going to funerals, which is how they meet. What a delight it is, Harold, to bump into you again. I knew we were going to be good friends the moment I saw you. You go to funerals often, don't you? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so do I. That's such fun, aren't they? It's change, all revolving. Burials and births, one linked to the other. The great circle of life. Hey, this whole thing handles well. Ever drive a hearse, Harold? Yeah. It's a new experience for me. What a hearse. Shall I take you home now? Uh, this is my car. Your hearse? Yours. Oh! Then you shall take me home. The two of them become fast friends, and she teaches him to sort of... She basically teaches him how to enjoy life, and to take pleasure in the simple things, to become more of a free spirit like she is, to sort of come out of his shell a little bit, and they quickly go from being two peas in a pod to becoming lovers. What? Meanwhile, Harold's wealthy, snobby, and kind of emotionally inept mother, uh, she keeps trying to mold him into, you know, her idea of a respectable young man. She has him see a shrink. It's terribly, Harold. What do you do for fun? What activity gives you a different sense of enjoyment from the others? What do you find fulfilling? What gives you that special satisfaction? I go to funerals. She asks his war veteran uncle to talk some sense into him. I'll make a man out of you, Harold. You'll travel the world, put on a uniform, and take on a man's job. You'll walk tall, with a glint in your eye and a spring in your step, and the knowledge in your heart that you are working for peace and are serving your country, just like Nathan Hale. 
Now that's what this country needs. More Nathan Hale. She registers him for a dating service so he can find a wife, and of course Harold sabotages every date that she sets up for him. That said, despite all this and despite all her meddling, she doesn't really take a genuine interest in Harold as a person. She doesn't really try to understand where this obsession or this fascination with death comes from. She basically just treats him like some sort of reclamation project. And eventually, in a scene between Harold and Maud, Harold reveals where his resentment of his mother comes from and where this sort of this obsession with death or these repeated suicide attempts come from. The first time was when I was at boarding school in the chemistry lab. I was in there cleaning it up. So uh, I decided I'd do a little experimenting, you know. So I threw all this stuff out and began mixing it up. It was very scientific. <laughs> uh, but it was this massive explosion. It, knocked me down, blew out a huge hole in the floor. There was uh, boards and bricks and flames leaping up. I figured, you know, time to leave. My career in school was over. So uh, I went home. My mother was giving a party, so I just went right up the back stairs into my room. Turned out the light, and uh, I got this funny feeling doorbell rang. I went out to the banister and uh, these two policemen came in, found my mother, and uh, told her that I was killed in the fire. She put one hand up to her forehead, the other she reached out as if groping for support, and with this long sigh, she collapsed in their arms. And as Maud quickly changes Harold's outlook on life, we come to find out she doesn't plan on living past her 80th birthday. And she ends up taking an overdose of sleeping pills before Harold proposes to her. After dinner. One more little surprise that I hope will make you very happy. I am happy. I couldn't imagine a lovelier farewell. Farewell? Yes, it's my 80th birthday. Well, you're not going anywhere. Are you? Yes, dear. I took the tablets an hour ago. I'll be gone by midnight. And spoiler alert, she ends up dying. But the film does end on a positive note because she's changed Harold's life for the better. And he can go out into the world and begin making the most of his life. 
and not only does Harold, the character of Harold and his struggles kind of fall into that theme that we mentioned of Ashby's young men trying to find their place in the world, there is also an interesting, I don't know if there's a parallel or if there's something here, I mean, you know, Harold's character is fascinated with death and stages all these fake suicides, and it's kind of an interesting choice of subject matter for Ashby given that you know, his own father committed suicide. I don't know if there's a parallel there. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I don't know. Something worth entertaining, I suppose. What the fuck do I know? Uh, let's get into the cast before we get into the production notes. So, Bud Court plays Harold. And Bud Court uh, had worked with Robert Altman a couple of times before this film. He was in M.A.S.H., he was in Brewster McCloud. He later shows up in the Kevin Smith film Dogma in uh, the late 90s. We have Ruth Gordon, the great Ruth Gordon, who won an Oscar for Rosemary's Baby in 1968. She was 72 at the time. She was actually a screenwriter in the 40s. She and her husband, Garson Kanan, were writing partners, and they got nominated for, I think, three Oscars for screenplays they had written earlier in their careers. And Ruth Gordon had a wonderful career as an actress as well. She was in Where's Papa, the great Carl Reiner comedy. I love that movie. And she was later in uh, Every Which Way But Loose with Clint Eastwood. Uh, she plays Maude in this, and she is absolutely fantastic. We'll talk about how she ended up getting the part shortly. Vivian Pickles... A really underrated performance from her in this. She plays Harold's mother. I know Ruth Gordon kind of gets all the shine in Harold and Maude, and, you know, it, it's deserved. But Vivian Pickles is absolutely fantastic in this as Harold's mother. The two of them actually don't have anything resembling a real conversation until, like, over an hour into the film. She's basically just calling all the shots for him. And it's a great performance from her. She was... Uh, she worked with Ken Russell in the 60s, and she was later in, uh, actually the same year Harold and Maude came out in 71. She was in Sunday Bloody Sunday, the John Schlesinger film. Are you uncomfortable meeting new people? Well, I think that's a yes. Don't you agree, Harold? Should sex education be taught outside the home? Oh, I would say no, wouldn't you, Harold? Yeah, we'll give a D there. Three, should women run for president of the United States? I don't see why not. Absolutely, yes. Do you remember jokes and take pleasure in relating them to others? Now, you don't do that, do you, Harold? No. Absolutely no. Do you often get the feeling that perhaps life isn't worth living? Hmm? What do you think, Harold? A? B? Oh, we'll put down C. Not sure. Hmm. Hmm. Is the subject of sex being overexploited by our mass media? That would have to be yes, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, we have Cyril Cusack, who plays Glaucus, Maud's sculptor friend. Charles Tyner shows up as General Victor Ball, Harold's uncle, who tries to, you know, kind of scare him straight. Charles Tyner was in Cool Hand Luke a few years before this. And we have George Wood, who plays the psychiatrist that Harold's mother sends him to. Uh, like Bud Court, who plays Harold, George Wood was in uh, M.A.S.H. and Brewster McCloud. And lastly, we have Ashby, who makes another cameo in this, uh, in the scene at the Penny Arcade. You can't miss him with, the, you know, his, his long hair and the beard. You'll, you'll spot him easily. So let's get into the production notes of this film. So this was written by Colin Higgins. Uh, he had been to UCLA Film School. The script for Harold and Maude was actually his thesis. And how this ended up getting picked up, interestingly, uh, Higgins had been working as a, a pool boy for a Hollywood producer, and Higgins had given the script to his wife. She ended up showing it to her producer husband, and long story short, the script ended up making it to Stanley Jaffe at Paramount. They ended up picking it up. Higgins actually wanted to direct the film, uh, but the studio wasn't happy with some of the screen tests that he had shot, so they ended up coming to Ashby. And Ashby was reluctant to direct the film because, you know, he figured it was Higgins' baby and he should be the one to direct it. 
but the studio basically made it known to Ashby that no matter what, they were going to hire another filmmaker to direct the film. Higgins wasn't going to take the director's chair no matter what, so Ashby ended up stepping in, and he convinced Paramount to up the budget from uh, 800000 to $1.25 million. And uh, casting this film was a little bit difficult. A lot of actors were considered for the role of Harold uh, before Bud Court was cast. Richard Dreyfus was one of them, Bob Balaban was another, John Savage... Uh, even Elton John was considered, and Ashby had hoped he would end up doing the music as well. But in any case, Bud Cord ended up getting the part. And to cast the part of Maud, Ashby was of the mind that Maud should be European. And so he flew to England to meet with some British actresses, hoping he would find his Maud. And it was actually the great British actress Edith Evans who told him to cast Ruth Gordon, who was from Massachusetts. And Ashby had actually met with Ruth Gordon before his trip to England, and so... At Edith Evans' suggestion, he ended up casting her, and thank God, because she's absolutely perfect in this part. Sure, I'm picking up on vices. <laughs> Vice, virtue. It's best not to be too moral. You cheat yourself out of too much life. Aim above morality. If you apply that to life, then you're bound to live it fully. And he ended up casting Vivian Pickles in England, of course. She was, uh, she was British herself. And so the film was shot in San Francisco, or in the San Francisco area, in San Mateo County, I think it was, in the Bay Area. And the shoot, all things considered, was pretty pleasant, although there were a few complications. For one thing, the weather up there in the Bay Area was pretty erratic. And another complication of sorts was kind of dealing with Bud Court. For one thing, Bud Court liked improvising, which was a little different from how Ruth Gordon liked to work. She was an old pro, she preferred sticking to the script. And Court was insistent that they try to make the fake suicide seem as real as possible, which actually led to a couple of close calls while shooting a few of those scenes. And not just that, he even entertained the idea of actually having a real sex with Ruth Gordon, who was in her 70s at the time, it's worth noting. And it is a very demanding part, the role of Harold, and Court was still a pretty young man, and he, uh, he was a little needy, let's say, over the course of the shoot, and Ashby ended up spending a lot of time with him to help him sort of ease into his part. Uh, but the results were, were wonderful. And as with The Landlord, the shoot ended up going slightly behind schedule. They ended up going a little over budget as well. Uh, and the producers weren't happy with Ashby because uh, he developed a reputation for being very, very hard to reach during his shoots. He preferred shooting on location, you know, away from the producers. And uh, he had a habit of not returning phone calls, and of course they weren't very happy about it. Although, they were pleased with the rushes and the footage that Ashby was shooting over the course of production. They were very, very happy with the film. That said, after the shoot, they were insistent that the sex scene between Harold and Maud be cut out of the film. Now, the two of them in the film are over 50 years apart. However, I mean, the scene is pretty tasteful, and it's not crass or vulgar by any means. I mean, it's basically just a shot of the two of them in bed, you know, post-coitus. So what Ashby did to basically force Paramount to keep the scene in the film, he took a little bit of footage from the sex scene and included it in the film's trailer, so Paramount had no choice but to leave it in there, and they weren't pleased about it, but luckily, you know, Ashby ended up getting his way because of it. And as for the music, uh, Elton John wasn't able to do it. He ended up suggesting Cat Stevens, who now goes by the name Yusuf Islam. He converted in the late 70s. It's about a handful of his songs that show up in the film that get peppered in. Miles from Nowhere is an especially great song. And so the film is completed. The preview screenings are a hit. The film gets a great reception, although the reviews from critics were mixed. And Paramount, again, this is another example of the studio kind of fucking with the release and the promotion of the film. Paramount decided to release Harold and Maude just a few days before Christmas, but it ended up backfiring on them. The belief is that, the, you know, the subject matter was a bit too daring or a bit too bold 
for that time of year at Christmas, which is traditionally, you know, very, very wholesome. And again, they fucked up the promotion because even though the studio knew that younger audiences would like this film based on the preview screenings, they ended up pushing the film as this sort of sweetsy film about this quirky friendship instead of pushing it as this sort of macabre, black, offbeat comedy that it was. And it was pulled from most theaters uh, within a week of its release. Uh, but luckily, despite the disappointing release and the disappointing reception uh, from the critics, the film did end up gaining a cult following. Young people still made it out to see it where it was playing, to the point where Paramount ended up re-releasing it two different times in 74 and 78. And it has grown to be arguably Ashby's best-known and most beloved film, and rightfully so. It's really funny, it's very sweet, the performances are wonderful, I mean, I love everything about it. And there's that great, again, I'm gonna say it again like I do almost every episode, there is a great long one-shot take at the very beginning of the film, it's about four minutes long of uh, the first time we see Harold staging his first fake suicide, uh, and it's beautifully shot. I think John Alonzo was the cinematographer on this. Uh, but in any case, I digress. So after this, this is two films in a row now that have had a disappointing release, that haven't really made much money, uh, but despite all this, Ashby is still getting offers to direct films, and he's getting approached by various big shots. He was approached to direct the film version of Hair, the hit musical, among others. He was also attached to direct a remake of The Postman Always Rings Twice with Jack Nicholson. That ended up falling through. And also in the early 70s, he had been approached by Michael Douglas to direct One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was being co-produced by Michael Douglas, and Ken Kesey was going to write the screenplay. He had written the original novel, and Ashby and Kesey actually started working together. They had started collaborating, but both of them ended up backing out for various reasons. For one thing, the producers didn't want to cast Jack Nicholson in the role of McMurphy, as Ashby wanted. And uh, from what I understand, they weren't pleased with Ken Kesey's script either. And long story short, the both of them ended up backing out. Ironically enough, though, Jack Nicholson ended up starring in both the remake of The Postman Always Rings Twice in the early 80s. And he ended up getting cast in the role of McMurphy for Cuckoo's Nest regardless. And he ended up winning an Oscar for Best Actor in 1975. Uh, that film ended up cleaning up at the Oscars, but anyway, it's a sort of ironic and uh, kind of cruel twist of fate. Um, but speaking of Jack Nicholson, this brings us to Ashby's next film, The Last Detail, which came out in 1973. Now, Ashby had actually been sent this script written by Robert Town. It had been sent to his production company, Dumb Fuck Films, which, uh, which he had started uh, around the time Harold and Maude was made, I think shortly after, so he could have more control over his own projects and make the films he wanted to make. So he had seen the script of The Last Detail, he had passed on it initially, but then when Columbia had picked it up and Nicholson was attached to Star, Nicholson had told Ashby about it and uh, he ended up coming on board to direct it. He had to get out of a contract at MGM first, but in any case. So The Last Detail stars Nicholson as Badusky and Otis Young as Mulhall, and these are two lifers in the Navy who are tasked with transporting a young seaman named Larry Meadows, played by Randy Quaid. They have to transport him to the brig for an eight-year prison term over petty theft. Now, Meadows is a bit of a kleptomaniac. He attempted to steal $40 from a fundraiser that was run by the wife of a senior Navy officer, and so they're basically making an example out of him. And so Badunsky and Mulhall are given a week to take Meadows from Norfolk, Virginia, to the Portsmouth uh, Naval Prison in New England. And initially, they plan on running him there quickly so they could spend the rest of the week, you know, having a good time and making various stops and spending Meadows per diem money on, you know, and basically enjoying themselves on the Navy's dime. Listen, uh, we can get this guy to Portsmouth in two days. 
this. They're gonna give us a week to do it. You know what I mean? So what? We get them there in two days, they ain't gonna give us no week to get back. Bullshit. Besides, they got to give us all that per diem regardless. That's money. For you, for me, and for him. Now, we run this little shitbird's ass all the way to the brig, save his per diem and ours, split it, and spend it on the way back home. You know what I mean? Bless you, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you goddamn right. <laughs> uh, but what ends up happening is uh, they make various stops. They stop in Washington, D.C. They make a, a brief detour to Camden, New Jersey, which is Meadows' hometown. They go to New York, they go to Boston, and they basically end up showing the kid a good time. Meadows is kind of, you know, emotionally withdrawn. He's a shy kid. Cheese melted in there for you? Sure. They melted it all. Send it back. It's all right. Send the goddamn thing back, Meadows. You're paying for it. It's all right. Meadows, have it the way you want it. Waiter! Melt the cheese on this for the chief, would you? Thank you. She knows. Trust your to have it the way that you want it. And again, it's that recurring theme that we see in both The Landlord and Harold and Maude. It's this young man, in Meadows' case, that we see sort of gradually coming out of his shell and going from boyhood to manhood and, you know, sort of coming into his own. Waiter. Yes, sir. I asked for my eggs over easy. Well, they are over easy, sir. No, they're not. <laughs> I'm learning. Yeah, I'm learning. And so Badusky and Mulhall kind of show him around. They eat, they drink. While they're in Boston, they take Meadows to a brothel where he ends up losing his virginity. Uh, but unfortunately, the inevitable happens. They eventually reach the brig, and Meadows ends up getting shuffled off pretty much as soon as they enter without so much as a goodbye. And this is easily the bleakest of Ashby's films. And Ashby was a hippie, for one thing, and he was, of course, anti-war, very peace and love. And having spent time at a naval academy in his youth, he didn't really think very highly of people who were in the service. But despite all that, this film actually humanizes these Navy men. Because if you look at them, I mean, their lives are very regimented. They really don't have much control over their daily lives, to the point where even their own master-at-arms kind of seems a little jealous when he's assigning them this mission to transport the prisoner. Well, good duty for you guys. You go to Washington, New York, Boston. I'd trade places with you. And so basically what this film depicts is just these these two servicemen, these two Navy lifers, making the most of what little power they've been given over these seven days, and kind of begrudgingly following orders for what's basically a thankless job. And at the end of the film, we see Badusky kind of spouting off, you know, going on this sort of profanity-laced tirade. You know, the Marine officers at the brig have given them some shit. You know, they've talked down to them, and basically reminded them that they're nothing more than lackeys. You haven't left yet. Sir? Your orders weren't endorsed when you left, so according to this, you're still in Norfolk. Well, we're standing here. It's not our fault. Yes, but you haven't left yet. It's not our you fault. You haven't left! That's not our fault. Look, sir, we both got a lot of time. What's that supposed to mean? 
And too much time to be hard-assed because some dude in Norfolk forgot to endorse our orders. You're asking for trouble, sailor. I'm asking to see the XO. Deep trouble. No. We ain't about to say anything else until we see the XO. And so we see Nicholson going on this angry tirade at the end of the film because really, that's all he can do. You're powerless, so all you can do is bitch about it. Goddamn grunts. Think they can get away with anything. Yeah. Telling me how to do my job. I know my job. I know my goddamn job better than anybody else in the goddamn Navy. Yeah. We really told that son of a bitch, though, didn't we? <laughs> Trying to ream our ass all over the place, and he don't even have enough sense to pull a few goddamn copies. Bunch of candy asses. I hate this motherfucking chicken chip And there's another interesting scene in the film. It kind of seems like a throwaway, but I think it's interesting because the, there's there's a moment in the film when, when the three of them are at the brothel, and Nicholson and Young, Badusky and Mulhall, are sitting on the couch and talking while Meadows is, you know, popping his cherry. And Nicholson's character, Badusky, is talking about how he ended up in the Navy and... He's explaining how he had given up on a sort of conventional, domesticated married life before joining the service. And I think there's a bit of a parallel to Ashby's own life in there. You know, him sort of leaving his wife and child in Utah and going out into the world and kind of shunning, you know, a, a traditional life and refusing to settle down. You ever been married? Not so you'd notice. Yeah. Once. Girl in Tarns. You know where that is? <clears throat> it's near San Pedro on the way to Terminal Island, you know. Dottie Brown. She had great tits and wore Angora sweaters all the time. She wanted me to go to trade school and become a TV repairman. Drive around all that smog and shit, fixing TVs out of the back of a VW bus. I just couldn't do it. Uh, but in any case, bleak as it is, I think it's a wonderful film. Again, the performances are great. It really is funny. It's a fantastic performance from Nicholson. Let me talk about the cast quickly before we uh, before we carry on. So Nicholson, like I said, plays with Dusky. He had been in Five Easy Pieces. He had been an Easy Rider before this, but he hadn't really become a sort of household name quite yet. One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest came a couple of years after this, and that's the film that got him his Oscar. So he was certainly a star on the rise, but not, you know, the megastar that we know him as today. And so he plays Badusky in this. We have Otis Young, who was actually a former Marine himself. Uh, he worked mostly on television. He plays Mulhall, or Mule as he's known, and he is... He's great in this. I haven't seen him in much else besides this, but I think he and Nicholson are, are a really great duo in this, and he's really funny as well. Mulhall. Master Arms wants to see you right away. I ain't going on no shit detail. Come on, Mule, it's my ass if you don't. I ain't going on no shit detail. It's your ass, too. Come on. Maybe your orders came through. Tell M.A. you couldn't find me. He knows where you are. Oh, yeah? When you're in the Navy, shitbird, you're in transit, nobody knows where the fuck you are. Now go tell the M.A.A. to fuck himself. I ain't going on no shit detail. Uh, Randy Quaid, like I said, plays Meadows. He had been in The Last Picture Show uh, and What's Up Doc, both directed by Peter Bogdanovich uh, shortly before this. He was a young man in this. 
He was also the uh, the brother of Dennis Quaid. And I gotta say, Randy Quaid is, is fantastic in this as well. And this, of course, was many years before uh, he became a whack job and fled to Canada thinking that people were after him. Uh, but that's another story for another day. We have Clifton James, who plays the master at arms of uh, these Navy men. He's the one who assigns them their mission of escorting Meadows to the brig. Clifton James was in Cool Hand Luke. He was also in a couple Bond films. He was in Live and Let Die and The Men with the Golden Gun. We have the great Carol Kane who shows up in the small part. Uh, she plays the sex worker, the prostitute, that takes Meadows' virginity at the brothel in Boston. She was in Carnal Knowledge. She was in Annie Hall, A Dog Day Afternoon. She was in Hester Street in 1975, got nominated for an Oscar for it. She was in Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. She's had a, a wonderful career, and it's a short but great appearance from her in this. I guess you haven't seen many girls because their clothes off heavy, honey. Well, let me tell you, I've got a good body. Not great, but pretty good. Uh, we have Nancy Allen, who plays a small part. She's, uh, she's a woman that, that Nicholson tries chatting up at a party. Uh, Nancy Allen did a lot of work with Brian De Palma. She was in Carrie, she was in Dressed to Kill, Blowout, and she and De Palma were actually uh, a married couple for a few years. Michael Moriarty is the Marine officer who tries sunning Nicholson and Young at the uh, at the naval prison at the brig. Michael Moriarty was in Bang the Drum Slowly. He was in Who'll Stop the Rain, the Carol Rice film, which we talked about in that episode a while back. He was in Law and Order as well for a few years. And Hal Ashby, yet again, has another cameo. We see him at a bar watching Nicholson play darts. And so that is the cast of this film. Uh, the last detail was based on a novel by Daryl Ponixon, who had been in the Navy himself. I think he served in the 60s. And uh, the producer of this film, Jerry Ayers, had actually bought the rights to The Last Detail in 1969. Uh, and Robert Town had written the script. Robert Town wrote Chinatown, which uh, Nicholson starred in in 74, which is a masterpiece. But Robert Town was actually told to tone down his script a little bit because of how much profanity was in it. Uh, and as for the casting, Rupert Cross was actually supposed to play the part of Mule that went to Otis Young. And Nicholson wanted Cross to play the part. He was all set to do it. Unfortunately... Cross was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and he ended up dying uh, in March of 73, not long after the film was released, and uh, that's how uh, Otis Young ended up getting the part. Cross just couldn't do it. He was ill. Cross was a great actor, by the way. He was the first black actor nominated for Best Supporting Actor at the Oscars for a film called The Reavers with Steve McQueen. This was in the late 60s, I think. We also mentioned him in our John Cassavetes episode. He was in Shadows and Too Late Blues, Cassavetes' first two films. Casting uh, the part of Meadows was pretty difficult as well, because in the script... Meadows was described as this sort of, you know, kind of a shrimp, a bit of a pushover. And Bud Court actually uh, aggressively pursued the part. He told Ashby that he wanted it badly, but uh, Ashby told him he wasn't right for it. And it had come down to Randy Quaid and John Travolta. Thank God Travolta wasn't cast. Uh, I'm not a fan, to be honest, but that's another discussion for another day. And Quaid was perfect casting. His physicality is, is nothing like Meadows as he's described in the script. Quaid was, like I said, he has that great sort of awkward physicality to him he's over six feet tall and totally unsure of himself and he does have a bit of that pushover thing about him but it, it's a great combination and it worked out wonderfully i mean fuck fair fucking justice don't you ever just want to fucking romp and stomp on someone bite off their ear just to do it i mean just to do it just to get it out of your system well i do i do re remember something i got mad at something when i was in the brig a marine did what happened? Run speed, yeah? Yeah. But that didn't get me mad. Well, 
God damn it, what did get you mad? This Marine guard, he asked me if I believed in Jesus Christ. I said, yeah. And he said that from now on, he was Jesus Christ, and I shouldn't ever forget it. What'd you do? Did you hit him? Now, can you imagine that? That's awful. Did you cold cock him? Better hope the chaplain don't catch him at that. Uh, unfortunately for the production, uh, they couldn't get the Navy's approval for the script or to shoot on one of their bases, so the scenes in the naval base actually had to be shot in Toronto, of all places. Although, they were able to finagle a few exteriors of the Navy base in Norfolk, Virginia, which is where the story begins. And, of course, they did it without permission. Uh, and then, uh, during the shoot, they basically made the exact same trip the sailors do in the film. So, you know, D.C., New York City, Boston. And so they actually used uh, a county jail in Boston, the Suffolk County Jail, I think it was, as the naval prison in the film. And budget-wise, this was uh, Ashby's biggest yet. He had uh, $2.6 million to work with. Uh, although, again, this is the producers and the studio ends up meddling in Ashby's business, uh, Columbia did not like the profanity in the film, and they asked him to cut a bunch of it out. Keep in mind, just for context, I believe Robert Altman's film M.A.S.H. was the first Hollywood film to have the word fuck in it, and that came out in 1970. This film came out in 1973, so profanity is, you know, still kind of frowned upon, and the last detail has about 60-some fucks in it, and variations thereof. Uh, by comparison, for today's standards, The Wolf of Wall Street, for instance, has over 500 uses of the word fuck. So, by today's standards, the last detail is actually, you know, pretty tame. But in any case, the, the cursing didn't sit well with Columbia. They wanted a bunch of it cut out. Ashby wouldn't budge. So they ended up uh, screening a few previews of the film. They were a success, much like with Harold and Maude. The film ended up staying as is, luckily. And the film gave it a limited release. Uh, at the end of 1973, so it could be uh, eligible for Oscar consideration. And sure enough, the film got great reviews. Jack Nicholson and Randy Quaid both got nominated for Oscars for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor, respectively. Uh, unfortunately, despite the great reception, the studio, again, they shoot themselves in the foot. They end up pulling the film after its limited release. They end up releasing it nationwide a few months later, and yeah, the film ends up turning a profit. I think it took in $4 million. So they netted about a million and a half in profits, but, I mean, it stands to reason that it would have made much, much more money if they had just gotten fully behind it from the beginning. And so Ashby and Nicholson became friends as a result of working together, and it was through Jack Nicholson that Ashby met Warren Beatty, who I've mentioned on this show a few times. I have made my feelings about him known, but that, again, is another story. But in any case, so Warren Beatty tells Ashby about a project that he and Robert Town had been working on, and they had written different versions of the script. They had clashed about it. Town and Beatty had a long friendship and working relationship. They clashed often. They had a bit of a love-hate relationship when it came to creative collaboration. Uh, but in any case, all this to say, Beatty tells Ashby about this project that he and Town are working on. And Ashby ends up getting hired to direct it. And that film was Shampoo, which came out in 1975. Now, this film was a sex comedy, basically. And it's set the day before the 1968 presidential election, which Richard Nixon ended up winning. Uh, and the film follows Warren Beatty as George Roundy, who's a hairdresser based in Beverly Hills, who basically just spends his time womanizing. He's got a girlfriend named Jill, who's played by Goldie Hawn. He's having an affair with a married woman named Felicia, played by the great Lee Grant. And it's Felicia who puts 
George in touch with her husband Lester so he could get financing to open his own salon. And of course, George Roundy comes to find out that Lester is having an affair of his own with a woman named Jackie, who's played by Julie Christie and who coincidentally is George's ex-girlfriend. Now, if that sounds messy, it's because it is. <laughs> this whole film is basically a giant sort of incestuous mess. And we see George Roundy Beatty's character. He's pretty much a fuck-up. And he's constantly on the move. He's juggling these women. But he is basically nowhere in life. He's not moving the needle on life at all. I need you to fix my hair. She's to pick us up pretty soon, huh? Well, she doesn't have to pick me up. I'm going with somebody else. By the way, you never did say how it went this morning. Oh, uh, okay. Well, are they going to give you the loan? Well, um, uh... I don't know why I bother to ask. The only way you're ever going to get money out of a bank is to rob one. What are you so mad about? Oh, just fix my hair. You break your neck to go up to Jackie's. When do I get my hair done? She asked me to do her hair. Does that mean you have to do whatever anybody asks? Why am I always at the end of the line when you're passing out favors? Now, you want me to do your hair, I'll do your And stop kissing everybody's ass that comes into that shop. That's not going to put you in business. That's going to make you a kiss ass. Now, Jill, I'm trying to get things moving. Oh, grow up. You never stop moving. You never go anywhere. Grow up. Grow up, grow up. He goes to a bank to get financing for a salon. Of course, he gets all but laughed out of the building. He's trying to juggle his uh, his romances with both Jill and Felicia. Look, Felicia, I, I won't be long. Listen, you're great, baby. Believe me, it's just this girl's different. You know, she has attacks. What attacks? These attacks. It's got something to do with her uh, pancreas. Or, uh, I don't know. She's got a pancreatic ulcer. Yeah, yeah, I think so. That's very serious. I know. Who's her doctor? I don't know. That's very serious. I know. Ruth Lesserman had a pancreatic ulcer. She did? It turned out to be a cancer. Wow. So what are you going for, George? You're not a doctor. I know. I gotta give her some pills. Uh, she ran out. Look, Felicia. I want your ass in this bed when I get back. You do? Yes. Very weird, George. Baby, but you're great, baby. Believe me, you are great. <laughs> he and Jackie end up reuniting. They're drawn to each other yet again. And so long story short, all these principal characters end up crossing paths at an election night event with a bunch of Republican big shots. They pretty much all end up learning about each other's affairs, and shit begins to unravel. A bunch of the characters end up at a house party in Beverly Hills, and that's where George and Jackie make their reunion official, they consummate their reunion, they end up having sex at this party. Jill and Lester both discover George and Jackie having sex. And so after George's, you know, never-ending womanizing kind of blows up in his face, he asks Jackie to marry him, thinking that it'll set him straight. Uh, but Jackie ends up turning him down. She ends up sticking with Lester. You're gonna kill me. Honey. What are you trying to do? I want you to marry me. I, I want to take care of you. I want, I want you to have a baby with me. Hey, I know I'm a fuck up, but I'll take care of you. I'll make you happy. I swear to God, I will. Huh? Hey. What do you think? It's too late. What do you mean it's too late? It's, we're not dead yet. That's the only thing. It's too late. Esther's left Felicia. We're going to Acapulco on the four o'clock flight. 
He's asked me to marry him. And George is left devastated, basically, and the film leaves him sort of pondering his fate and watching the only woman he's ever come close to loving, really, just drive away. And the film was intended as a satire of sorts. I mean, it kind of takes the piss out of what's become of the sexual revolution and free love and the counterculture movement and all that shit. I mean, keep in mind, the film is set in 1968. And pretty much all the characters in the film are completely superficial. They're self-absorbed. They're either emotionally inept or just refuse to get involved with anyone emotionally. Their relationships mean absolutely nothing to them. What about Jackie? Oh, never mind. She's nothing but a whore. Over there, I have a few drinks. I get my gun off. I'm through with her. Nothing but a whore. Oh, no. You could call everybody a whore. She really likes you, Lester. It's not just the bread. You think so? Yes, I do. Nah, I'm through with her. And we also see at the house party in Beverly Hills, where a bunch of the characters end up, there's naked swimming, there's drugs. And we basically see the hippier counterculture movement get watered down and die a slow, embarrassing death in affluent Beverly Hills. And in keeping with these, you know, recurring themes in Ashby's work, this is another one we, uh, we haven't mentioned. For one thing, it takes the piss out of the upper class. And, of course, you see that in The Landlord. You see that in Harold and Maude with Harold's snooty and uh, uptight mother. And we see it in the last detail as well. I mean, there's mention of Nixon at this hippie party. And in Shampoo, we see a couple of other political jabs. There's recurring images of, of Nixon. There's a few mentions of him. You can lose it all, you know. I mean, you can lose it all no matter who you are. What's the sense of having it all? Critics as well as those who support him. Margaret, we're down 10 points last week. Goddamn, we're in Johnson. The races. Yeah. We want to bring the well, America together. And maybe Nixon will be better. That's the difference. They're all a bunch of jerks. And, of course, Nixon was in office at the time Ashby started making films, and coincidentally, by the time Shampoo came out in 1975, uh, Nixon had actually stepped down and resigned uh, in wake of the Watergate scandal. And, uh, interestingly enough, Ashby had voted for Nixon's opponent, George McGovern, in the 72 election, and Warren Beatty had actually openly campaigned for McGovern and raised money for him. So the two of them actually wanted nothing to do with Nixon, and uh, Nixon actually ended up winning by a landslide in 1972 before shit hit the fan with Watergate and all that. And there's another recurring theme, again, of these male protagonists in Ashby's films, of George. Granted, he's a little older than, than the other male protagonists we talked about, Larry Meadows, Harold, and uh, Elgar Enders. But even still, we see George again just kind of stumbling his way through life and making mistake after mistake and trying to keep up his his fuckery, pun intended, you know, in every sense of the term. But the difference is, I guess, unlike the other male characters in Ashby's films, in his early films, George never really looks inward. He never really takes an account of himself. He doesn't question anything about his conduct or what he's doing with his life. You know why I used to get so angry with you? Oh. I wouldn't settle down. Because you're always so happy about everything. I was. found it rather unrealistic. Until basically everything blows up in his face at the end and he's left with no choice but to actually reevaluate where he is with himself. Let's face it, I fucked them all. I mean, that's what I do. That's why I went to beauty school. I mean, they're always there and I can't, I, I just, I, I, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know what I'm apologizing for, so sometimes I fuck them. I go into that shop, and they're so great looking, you know. And I and I, I'm doing their hair, and they feel great, and they smell great. 
Or I could be out on the street, you know, and I could just stop at a stoplight or go into an elevator. Or I, I, there's a uh, beautiful girl. I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's it. It makes my day. I mean, it makes me feel like I'm going to live forever. And as uh, far as I'm concerned with what I'd like to have done at this point in my life, I, I, I know I should have accomplished more, but I got no regrets. I mean, Jesus, because I, I, I mean, I, um, I, ah. Uh, Maybe that means I don't love him. Maybe it means I don't love you. I don't know. And so let's talk about the cast before we uh, we move on to the production notes. Warren Beatty, like I said, I am not a huge fan of him as an actor. I think his merits lie as a producer and as a director primarily. We've mentioned him on the show a few times, and he has had a great career as an actor to his credit. And if anything, if there's any talent Beatty has, is he really knows how to surround himself with exceptionally talented people. <laughs> Um, but in any case, he plays George in this. We have Julie Christie, the great Julie Christie, who had actually co-starred with Beatty in the Altman film McCabe and Mrs. Miller a few years prior. I love Julie Christie. She won an Oscar for uh, the film Darling in 1965. Uh, she was in Dr. Zhivago as well. She was in uh, Don't Look Now with Donald Sutherland, the Nicholas Rogue film. She's had a, a wonderful career. She plays Jackie in this, the ex of Beatty's character, Roundy, and the two of them, you know, like I said, they reunite. They have sex. They're drawn to each other all over again. And Julie Christie is wonderful in this as usual. We have Goldie Hawn, who plays George Roundy's girlfriend, Jill, in the film. Goldie Hawn is Kate Hudson's mother, for one thing. Uh, she also won an Oscar for a film called The Cactus Flower in 1969 with Walter Matthau, and she got nominated for Best Actress in 1980 for a film called Private Benjamin. We have the great Jack Warden, one of the great character actors. Uh, he plays Lester in this, and Jack Warden is just one of those guys. He's like every great character actor. You can basically just plug him into anything, and he knows what to do, and he always hits it out of the park, and he is absolutely hilarious in this. Uh, we have the great Lee Grant, who plays Felicia, the married woman, that Roundy is having an affair with. She is married to Lester, Jack Warden's character, and she is uh, completely sex-starved and uh, very horny, to say the least. Uh, and we have a young Carrie Fisher as well, who plays Lorna, the daughter of Lester and Felicia. This was her film debut. She was 17 at the time this film was made. This is a couple of years before uh, Star Wars. And her character ends up meeting Beatty's character, George, on the film, and the two of them end up, end up getting their freak on. Beverly Hills hairdresser. You might as well be a faggot. Think that's funny, too? No. Then what do you think? Uh, you know, I think you got exactly the same eyes as your mother. And your chin's a little bit like hers, too. No, it isn't. I think it no, is. No, no, and my eyes they're aren't like hers either. They are. No, they're, they're not. They're not. They no, they're not. They I, really I'm not like my mother. I'm not trying to insult you, you know? Can't we just, uh, be friends? Okay. You wanna fuck? Uh, we have Tony Bill, who plays Johnny Pope, a director who, uh, is casting Jill, Goldie Hawn's character, in a project that he's directing, and, you know, the two of them end up hooking up. Like I said, it's a big, sort of incestuous mess. Uh, Tony Bill was an actor, a director, and a producer. He ended up winning an Oscar for Best Picture in 1973 for co-producing The Sting, which we talked about on our George Roy Hill episode. And lastly, we have Jay Robinson, who plays Norman, Beatty's boss, at the Salon in Beverly Hills. So there the cast. Uh, Warren Beatty produced, co-wrote, and starred in this film. 
And not just that, much of the crew were people of his choosing. He chose the cinematographer, he chose the production designer, he had invested a lot of his own money in the film as well, to be fair. But Beatty was a little too involved during the production of this film. He was an obsessive control freak. Ashby ended up having very little control over the film during the shoot. And you had Ashby, who, like I said, liked to keep things loose. Basically, just liked to tell his actors to surprise him. You know, he gave them a lot of freedom. And then you have Beatty, who was a notorious perfectionist, who wanted a shit ton of takes. He wanted things done his way. You have Robert Town, who, of course, co-wrote the script. So he has his input, he wants scenes shot a certain way, so the actors are basically getting direction from three different people, you know, much to their frustration, and rightfully so, to the point where Lee Grant actually came very, very close to just walking off the film entirely over a disagreement that she had had with Warren Beatty over a, a scene that they were shooting. And it's worth noting, another thing I need to mention, uh, like his character George in the film, Warren Beatty was a notorious womanizer, he was a Lothario, and Julie Christie and Goldie Hawn were actually both ex-girlfriends of his. And the two of them are not only in the film together, they actually had a few scenes together. And both actresses actually were of the mind that they should have swapped roles. And so it was a, it was a very difficult shoot for, uh, for a lot of the people involved. And when it came to the music, which, like I said, was very, very important to Ashby, Beatty basically poo-pooed uh, all of Ashby's choices for the music of the film. Ashby had thought about putting music from The Birds, Buffalo Springfield, Jefferson Airplane. Beatty didn't approve of his choices, and I don't think Columbia was going to go for it anyway, for whatever that's worth. And so long story short, uh, they ended up just using about three minutes of music that, uh, that Paul Simon had put together. And despite all these issues and all these, you know, the clashes between Beatty and Town and all these, all these frustrations that came with the production of this film, uh, Ashby, from what I've read, never lost his cool, never really clashed with Beatty. And presumably, I think that's due in large part to the fact that it was his biggest production yet. And, you know, being a production of this magnitude and, you know, with all these big names attached, I guess... Ashby figured that no matter what, Shampoo would help his career, and so I think he just figured it was wise and tactical to just sort of, you know, roll with the punches and keep his head down. Although, one idea of his that did stay in the film was the open ending. From what I understand, Beatty and Town both clashed on how the film should end, and so this was actually one of the only times that them disagreeing actually ended up working in Ashby's favor. And so uh, the ending you see in the film is one of Ashby's choosing. And so the film comes out in 1975, it got mixed reviews, and understandably so, but it was a huge financial success, it took in over $60 million worldwide, it was the third highest grossing film of 1975, and it got nominated for a bunch of Oscars, it got nominated for uh, Richard Silbert's art direction, uh, Robert Town and Warren Beatty both got nominated for their screenplay, uh, Jack Warden ended up getting nominated for Best Supporting Actor, and Lee Grant won her Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for her role as Felicia. Now she is wonderful in this. But you don't see a ton of her in it. I think if Lee Grant should have won for any of her performances, it should have been either for Detective Story or The Landlord. Those are my two favorite of hers. Uh, but in any case... Yeah, and overall, I mean, it's a good film. It is funny, but it's funny. The, the, the one knock on Ashby's body of work is that his films don't stand the test of time, or a lot of them don't in any case. This one, of the four films we've talked about thus far, this one probably... This one hasn't aged particularly well compared to the others. And it is a very superficial film, partly because, I mean, it's a film that, that deals with a bunch of superficial people. But, I mean, if anything, it's certainly worth a look just to watch the supporting performances alone. And it's it does have its merits as just, you know, this, this little time capsule of that time in America. And so those are the films of Ashby's that I wanted to talk about today. I do want to talk about this sort of thread that we've seen in these 
these early films of his and the, the parallels that these male protagonists have with Ashby's own life, especially in these first three films, The Landlord, Harold and Maude, and The Last Detail, again, it's these, these young men who are sort of trying to find their place in the world, and naturally, you know, they're making a lot of mistakes as they do it, and such is life. And that very much mirrors Ashby's own life. He had a rebellious streak in his youth. You know, he kind of bounced around after leaving home. He drifted for a little bit. He did a little more bouncing around in L.A. And again, speaking of falling on your face repeatedly until you can get your shit together, Ashby, keep in mind, was a man who was married and divorced five times by his early 40s. And uh, he had the good sense to give up on marriage altogether after that. Um... <laughs> And I also want to talk about, you know, Ashby as a man and his, his flaws and his contradictions. Ashby was a hippie before it was cool, for one thing. And you see him. He looked the part. He, you know, he had the long hair. He had the beard. He had his beads and his sandals. He was a lifelong pot smoker. He enjoyed psychedelics on occasion. And again, having worked in the film industry in the 60s and 70s, he was uh, very active in the counterculture movement, supported a variety of causes. Of course, it was anti-war, again. The Vietnam War was still a thing in the 60s and up until the early 70s. Uh, he supported the abolition of the death penalty. He wanted leniency for marijuana use. These are just a few of many causes that Ashby supported. He fancied himself as being kind of anti-establishment, not a fan of the upper class. And again, this was a sort of a product of his working with Norman Jewison when he was an editor. He did not like producers very much. He treated the money men as the enemy, tried shooting as much of his films on location as he could, and one of the perks being that the money men and the producers wouldn't be around as much to sort of interfere in his business. And he also seemed to be a bit of an anti-materialist at times, or at least a lot of people said he was, especially when he was an editor. You know, he worked long hours, 17, 18-hour days, often slept in the cutting room and went back to work in the early morning. There was a time, I think, for a couple of years that he lived on a studio bungalow where he could sleep and just edit all day without ever having to leave. Although, despite all that, he did enjoy some of the perks of working in the film industry. He did enjoy some of the finer things. I mean, when he was making Harold and Maude, Paramount basically gave him a villa in the hills that had its own cutting room where he could live and work in the same place. And, you know, it was a... Uh... It was a big, lovely house. He drove a Jaguar that Jewison had given to him as a gift. You know, he liked his fancy cars. He drove a Ferrari. He drove a Porsche at one time. So, you know, despite being a hippie and a, you know, a supposed anti-materialist, he did enjoy some of the spoils of, uh, of working in show business. And as far as his personality, from what I've read and just based on my research, he seemed by most, if not all accounts, to be a very warm and sweet man, at least according to the people he worked with. Uh, was a very affable guy, made friends very easily, had a very gentle way with actors, spent a lot of time with them if they needed, genuinely wanted to see them succeed. Uh, and he was also a firm believer that filmmaking was a collaborative experience. It was a communal art form, you know, him being the, being the hippie that he was. And generally was just regarded as a very easygoing and gentle man who took a genuine interest in people. And on the other side of that, you have the other side of that coin. I mean, you have a man who basically alienated those close to him. You look at his family relationships, his marriages. He grew apart from his siblings. He and his brother Jack had basically grown up together, and they ended up growing apart. And he didn't really remain close with any of his siblings. I mean, his brother Hetz, his oldest brother, died around the time Harold and Maud was being released. He didn't even make it back to Ogden for his funeral. And his mother Eileen, I mean, there's no question that Ashby loved her, just based on what I've read about his life. The two of them kept a very sort of... Uh, they kept an inconsistent correspondence over the course of their lives. They, they wrote to each other. But even still, Ashby kind of kept her at arm's length. And oftentimes, he wouldn't even tell his mother about his marriages or his divorces until well after the fact. And 
there's been speculation that, you know, maybe Ashby had, a, you know, he had some complicated feelings around his mother. Maybe he was harboring some resentment. Maybe he blamed her to some certain extent over his parents' divorce or his father's suicide. I mean, who the fuck knows? I mean, I, I can't say for sure. But uh, he had a very complicated relationship with his mother, to say the least. And not just that, you know, he walked out on his wife and child shortly after his daughter was born, and he never even played so much as a peripheral role in his daughter's life. She ended up getting raised by a stepfather, if I remember right. And not just that, he, he kept away from Utah, from his hometown of Ogden, as often as he could. He went back very few times over the course of his life after he had gone to Los Angeles to pursue a career in filmmaking. And even when he went back, he was very uncomfortable, he was out of place. And in his own romantic relationships and in his marriages, he, um, he was known as a romantic. I mean, he was a guy who fell in love hard and fast. And his relationships at the very beginning were all consuming, but they all ended up fizzling out. And not just that, they ended up all taking a backseat to his work. Ashby, from the time he was an editor, basically became a workaholic. Like I said, would spend very, very long hours in the cutting room. And when every one of his relationships or his marriages hit the rocks and started going south, the cutting room was basically was a convenient escape for him. It was just, you know, it was a good excuse for him to throw himself into his work and keep away from home and just not have to deal with his, with his problems. And so, as for the rest of his career... Uh, Ashby continued to make films through the 1970s. The 70s were a very good decade for him. Every one of the films he made through the 1970s is solid, and after Shampoo, he made Bound for Glory with David Carradine in 76. He made Coming Home in 78 with uh, Jane Fonda and John Voight, who plays a disabled war veteran. Uh, he made Being There as well with Peter Sellers in 1979. But unfortunately, his, uh, his career hit the rocks in the 80s. Uh, he had more clashes with producers. His films were not nearly as successful as uh, his 70s films. He had some health problems that surfaced later in his life as well. And ultimately, Ashby ended up dying of cancer at his home in Malibu in Los Angeles on December 27, 1988, and he was just 59 years old. And I don't mean to sort of gloss over that latter part of his life, because what I plan to do is I want to do another episode on Ashby in the future where we're going to cover his later films, his later 70s films, and what went wrong with his career in the 80s, and sort of the latter part of his life. So we're going to do... There will be a second part on Hal Ashby in the future. I just want to do it a little further down the road. That way other people who sort of get familiar with the show in the future will be able to get to know uh, Ashby's work and some of his life and be introduced to him. And so that is all I got on Hal Ashby for now. Like I said, those first four films are solid. The first three, especially The Landlord, Harold and Maude, The Last Detail. You can find them all very, very easily online. Uh, and I highly encourage you to watch them and uh, to get acquainted with his work. I'm sorry I ended on a bit of a downer, especially talking about Ashby's flaws as a human being. That's one of the drawbacks of doing this show, is you find out who these directors are as people, and you kind of wish you had it in some cases. Um, <laughs> yeah, try to separate the man from his work is what they say, you know. Uh, but in any case, uh, check out Ashby's work. Still worth a look. And uh, like I said at the top of the show, you can find the show on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Samsung Podcasts, whatever your preferred platform is, you can find the show, I'm sure. Please listen, like, subscribe, leave comments, ratings, reviews, whatever you can do is greatly appreciated. Thank you very much for your support. Keep it coming. Uh, and don't forget to follow us on the Instagram. The handle is Close Set Podcast. Like I said, I, uh, I post updates on what's coming up with the show, who we're going to be covering, what films we're going to be looking at. Uh, when you can expect new episodes to drop. The new schedule, as of now, is the first Thursday of every month, so you know when to come back for a new episode. And you can also reach us by email at closesetpod at gmail.com. That is closesetpod at gmail.com. Questions, comments, feedback, constructive criticism, whatever you got, you know what to do. Feel free. And until next time, 
Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. The winner is Hal Ashby for the heat of the night. Uh, to repeat uh, the words of a very dear friend of mine last year when he picked up his Oscar, I only hope that we can use all of our talents and creativity towards peace and love. Thank you. Thank you.